The, the word Advent literally means um, coming. It means arrival. And that's why each December, Christians all over the country and in different parts of the world celebrate Advent. They celebrate the first coming of Jesus Christ. There is a second coming, and that's called the second Advent, but we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. And so in the celebration of Advent, we have interrupted the present series that we are in on 2 Corinthians, which is titled, Weak is Strong, to do a short Advent series called Wonder. Wonder. And our goal in that is to look at some of the principal Bible passages that shape and inform and outline the Christmas story to see how they are united together under this theme of of wonder. So I want to ask you to to uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 8 through verse 18. Title of this morning's message is, The Wonder Child. The Wonder Child. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 8, and if you don't have a Bible, it will appear on the screens, so no problem. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will, be, that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Let's pray. Lord, it is our desire this morning to open Your Word, to behold the Son, and to be filled with wonder. We pray to You because we know that we can't achieve that In our flesh, we can't achieve that apart from you. 
that you by your spirit must illuminate your word. You by your spirit must fall upon us so that we can see you. We pray that you would do that now through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, since we're using the word wonder in both the series title and in the title for this morning's message, it might be wise for me to take a second and just define what I mean to you by the word wonder. I'm not talking about the kind of wonder that involves curiosity, as in, I wonder why people swim in Wakulla Springs when there's alligators there. And if you're curious about the answer to that, the answer is because there's a rope there, and the rope keeps the alligators off. The alligators are like they're saying, hey guys, back off, there's a rope there. We don't mind eating humans, but we're not going to break any rules while we do it, okay? We are ethical alligators. I'm not talking about that kind of wonder, wonder as curiosity. I'm talking about wonder as a kind of marvel. In fact, this morning I want to define wonder as amazed adoration. Amazed adoration. And it's important that we think about that because we live in a day where the bar for wonder is actually pretty low. I mean, just think about the kind of words, the kind of superlatives we use to describe just mundane, routine things. We say, the party was awesome. The pizza was epic. The movie on Netflix last night was mind-blowing. You know, there's a sense that when God vanishes from the modern mind, wonder doesn't disappear. It just kind of shrinks to the size of man. It just kind of shrinks to the stuff that man accomplishes rather than the things that God accomplished. So we wonder over the microchip. We wonder over Twitter, Twitter followers or over rushing yards, or or IQs, or investment returns. We marvel more over the existence of a Hubble telescope than the glorious galaxies that it reveals to us. And you see, the problem is not that we wonder, it's that our adoration is too easily satisfied. It's like the time I arrived at the beach to find my kids playing with some broken toys at the very entrance of the beach. They weren't down at the water, on the beach, playing in the, in the water, at the beach, in the sand. And I'm walking up, and I'm seeing them, and they're playing with these broken toys. And I'm thinking, like, are you in need of professional help? What is the problem here? I don't know these kids. I've never seen these kids before in my life. Because, you know, there's a sense where they're settling for busted toys when a vast ocean awaits them. It's not that they didn't wonder. It's that it was probably too easily... They were too easily amazed. In other words, the wonder bar was set too low. I've been thinking about this passage lately, kind of turning it over in my mind, trying to peel back God's intent. One of the purposes of preaching, the task of preaching each and every week, is to connect God's people to God's intent for a certain passage. And in trying to get at that, I began to look closely at verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And I began to realize, I think that's like the rich, chewy center of this section of Scripture. 
Because we too are supposed to wonder at what the shepherd saw. We too are supposed to wonder over what the shepherd said. In a way that moves us out of this kind of childlike fascination that we can have with shepherds and stars and wise men, to to a fresh sense of wonder because we understand and are experiencing the reality of what it means that this particular child has come. And there is this sense where each Christmas, every year, it's installed by God in the annual calendar that we might recalibrate our sense of wonder, that God might restore it to its rightful place in our life, and we might get a fresh sense of what there really is in the world and in creation to wander over. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to return to this passage and, and find in this passage the wonder that is there so that God might work in us by raising the bar for our wonder. And we wonder over the things that are really worth wondering about. So what sparks wonder in, in, in Luke chapter 2? Well, I've got three points. The first is the wonder over the, over the angel's audience. The angel's audience. So we're, we're, we're opening this passage in verses 8 and 9, and verses 8 and 9 takes us to a field with shepherds, and shepherds, of course, there, and they're doing what they're paid to do. The shepherds are keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, important thing to understand about the shepherds is that back in biblical times, shepherding was not exactly um, white-collar work. It was, they were a group of people that were kind of near the edge of society. They were uh, on the margins. They didn't have a lot of credibility. In fact, among the religious people, shepherds were despised because their job made it impossible to obey the Mosaic law. Among the secular people, they were also, they also had a very bad reputation. They were often found to be untrustworthy. They were known to kind of pocket things when they would travel through villages. Shepherding was a profession without credibility. In fact, it was so bad that if you were a shepherd, you were not permitted to testify or be a witness in court because you had no credibility. You had no credibility as a witness, as a shepherd. And this is kind of where the whole wonder thing begins to take shape. This is where it starts. Because the shepherds were the recipient for God's big premiere. The shepherds were the target audience for the greatest announcement to be made to man to date. And so the the, the picture starts to take shape and the shepherds are on the scene. But it doesn't end there. Because we have to think about what's going on in heaven. See, the angels... I mean, the angels had probably been rehearsing for this moment for centuries. Because to date, this was the climax of history. Now, what would ultimately become the climax of history would be the death and resurrection of the Savior. But to date, this was the climax of history. God becoming man, Emmanuel. And the angels knew that. They had been anticipating that. You remember that anticipation you used to have as a child waiting for Christmas? That's exactly what the angels were going through. They were waiting for Christmas. They were anticipating it. And the angels had waited ever since that whole Eden thing had gone down. And Adam and Eve tanked in the Garden of Eden. They went dark. 
And the angels had been anticipating this, and they had practiced their songs for thousands of years. And I just imagine them coming to God and saying, Lord, this is so wonderful. This is so exhilarating. Who is going to be the target audience for this this epic announcement that we are prepared to make? Will you, O God, be convening all of the leaders of the world? Will it be the religious divines? Will it include the educated elite? Will the wise be there? Will the artistic be pulled together? Will the popular people be there? And God's saying to them, No. Just a few shepherds. Watching their flocks in the middle of the night. You know, when I was a kid, you knew a big, big news was coming when on the network you were watching, they would stop the program and they would say, we interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. And if you were napping on the couch, your eyes immediately just snapped open because you knew something important was coming. That either the network or the government had this assumption in place that there is some news that is so important, there is some news that is so significant, there is some news that is so life-altering that everyone must know immediately. God says, yeah, we're not going to do it that way. In fact, the audience for this is not going to be upper class, it's going to be lower class. Not going to be the many, but the few. Not the wise, but the simple. Not the strong, but the weak. Not the religious, but the sinners. Who would have believed it? This news would confound the clever. This news would confuse the proud. There was this announcement that was coming that was going to announce a revolution that would come in the form of an infant. Who would have believed it? Only the humble. It's as if God is saying, the coming of my son will be like the character of my son. The coming of my son will be like the hearts of those who will ultimately be drawn to my son, through my son, it will be humble. You talk about wonder. The shepherd symbolized those he came to save. The disreputable, the outcasts, the rebels, the sinners, you, me. And if that makes you wonder this morning, boy, that's a good sign. Because it means that you truly comprehend Christmas. And perhaps for you, your wonder is beginning to be recalibrated. So it's wonder first over the angel's audience. Secondly, is wonder over the Savior's sign. The Savior's sign. So the angels appear to the shepherds, and while they're speaking, they announce... A king, verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. That that there, right right there in Old Testament language, that means a king is coming. And then they spell it out a little bit further in the latter part of that verse. A savior who is Christ the Lord. And then they roll on to verse 12 where the angels say, and this will be a sign. Oh, what's the sign? You will find baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in 
a manger. So the sign is that this king who's coming, this savior who's announced by the angels and revealed to the shepherds, will come wrapped in swaddling clothes, which would not have been unusual for a newborn back in that day. All the newborns in Bethlehem at that time were probably wrapped in swaddling clothes. But this is what distinguished this particular child. This child was resting in a manger, in a stable. A manger is like a a trough that animals eat out of. In a manger. I mean, the moms that are here that have been pregnant and had, had kids. I mean, you remember the hours before the child came. You remember the anxiety. You remember the pain. You remember how the only thing that was on your mind is, I need to find a place that is safe and healthy to have my child. I need to find, I need to know where. And they finally arrive at the place they think it's going to be, somewhere that's safe, somewhere they can have a bed, somewhere they can have a room, but there is no room at the inn. So where are they going to go? With one of my kids, they were a little bit late, and so I was driving through Philadelphia, just blowing red lights, blowing stop signs. It was a blast. I was just blowing through because I had this task, but I knew where I was going. I knew exactly where we were going to have the baby, praying it wasn't going to be in the car, but I knew the hospital that we were going to. You remember that? When they arrive at the inn, there's no room at the inn. So they're sent out back, Mary and Joseph. And we don't exactly know what that means, whether it was just an open area where the animals were tended and fed could have actually meant a cave out back where there was a manger. But the point is that there was this place, the sign for the shepherds that they have found the king, the sign that they have found the savior, the sign that Emmanuel has come, God with us has come, is that you will go to humble places. And you will see not a king in his majesty, not surrounded by royalty, not with crowns all over the place, you will see a baby lying in a manger. You know what's interesting is the Bible moves us away from certain visions of Christmas that often appear, uh, particularly in our Christmas carols, because you read this story and you realize it was hardly like a winter wonderland. There were no chestnuts roasting on an open fire. There was nowhere where the treetops glisten and children listen. By the way, what world did that guy live in? Children listen at Christmas time. I mean, they're like naughtiest at Christmas time. On the contrary, it was God among us in a manger, signifying that God himself had unwrapped himself of his glory, God himself had left his heavenly home, come to foreign soil, to lie in a filthy place, to reach those who wanted nothing to do with him. Nothing to do with him at all. You know, I'm really grateful that Christmas is built around family. You know, we decorate the house and pull family together. And if you're me, kind of squeeze into your nice clothes that you haven't worn for a year. But it's interesting that Christmas is really, from God's perspective, it's God undressing. 
God undressing. Laying aside the robes of splendor that he had before his incarnation. Taking the form of a servant. Stepping away from his heavenly home. Arriving on earth as an immigrant. Dependent. Naked. Poor. No room at the inn. Booted out to the back. Placed in a cattle trough. That's Christmas. I mean, I'm not looking to spark a riot here, but if we really wanted to experience Christmas in keeping with Luke chapter 2, we wouldn't dress up, we'd dress down. We wouldn't be feasting on Christmas Day. There might be maybe a few morsels that we would give thanks for. And we wouldn't be with our family. In fact, we would leave our family to relocate to some foreign land only to discover that there's no room at the inn. And I guess that invites me to ask you a question this morning about how you're thinking about the next couple of weeks. And one would be, you know, what does it mean to you to to wander over the Savior's sign this Christmas? What does it mean to you to do that? Maybe Maybe it's taking time before you open gifts, Christmas Eve, Christmas morning, Maybe before you open gifts, we should open the Word of God, maybe even to this passage. That was a small tradition that we kind of observed in the Harvey house with the kids on Christmas morning, is that we would first open our Bible, and we would read the Christmas story, and we would talk about what we're thankful for, because I wanted to set the gifts the kids received in the context of wonder. And remember what the point is. But maybe it's not about leaving our home this Christmas. Maybe it's just about opening our home this Christmas. Opening our home to folks for whom there is no room at the inn. People with no family here in in the area, perhaps. The single mom, the international students, the widower, the widow. Those who have... No one. I wonder if a step like that wouldn't push our wonder button this Christmas. You know, help in the recalibration of wonder for our own, our own hearts. Because part of the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 is that we, we wonder over the Savior's sign. And then the last point, which is that we wonder over the shepherd's story. We wonder over the shepherd's story. So in the story, as the Savior's coordinates are being considered, in other words, he's in the city of David, he's, he's, he's in a manger, Luke says in verse 13, suddenly, suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. In other words, it's as if all of heaven could no longer even contain the news. And so this thin veil that separates the the spiritual, the heavenly from the earthly, this thin veil is pulled back. And and what breaks loose is probably the greatest a cappello rendition of a song that has ever been heard in the history of the world. 
And they're glorifying God because the peace of God has arrived among men. The long-awaited peace that the prophets have talked about, the long-awaited peace of God is here and now. And, you know, what does that mean exactly? Peace of God. Peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Does that just mean like an absence of hostility? Does that mean an absence of conflict or the end of war? I don't know if you've ever heard the account of in 1914 during the First World War where Germans and British troops were squared off in trenches about 30 yards from each other, both of them hoping that there would be some kind of reprieve from battle at least over the next 24 hours during Christmas. And one of the German troops began to sing a Christmas carol. And hearing it on the other side, one of the British began to sing in response. And so they were both singing together, and then more began to sing. And, and pretty soon one of the Germans, one of the British, got up out of the trench, hands up, and, and just stood there. And so one of the Germans got up, and more of the British. And so the Germans and the British, across from the trenches on this night, on Christmas Eve, come together. And they end up spending, not only Christmas Eve, but Christmas Day together, eating and playing soccer and enjoying peace. Is this what peace means? Is this what peace means at the pa- in the passage? Is it, like, is it the, the cessation of war? The cessation of hostility? Well, sort of. Yeah. Except our enemy is not the Syrians. It's not Al-Qaeda. It's not ISIS. It's not a political party. Our enemy is, apart from Jesus, God. See, the problem that needed to be solved through Christmas is that anyone who sins makes God an enemy, and we all sin. Because God is holy and just, holy and just, He must, because He is God, uphold His law, and He is bound by His law to punish sin. And since we are all born sinners, it means we are born in conflict with God and we spend our whole life apart from Jesus declaring war towards God by sinning against Him. But here's the amazing thing about the Christmas story. God loves us. And so He, out of His love for us, found a way to bring Peace, a way that would both uphold his justice, the justice of his law, and punish sin, which his law demanded. And he did it through the brilliance of becoming Emmanuel, God with us. And by becoming Emmanuel, he positioned himself to offer himself as a substitute for our sins, to suffer the death, not that he deserved, but that we deserved. To pay the debt, that not that he owed, but that we owed. It's like if if you were up at Red Elephant and you had just eaten a great lunch and piled up a big check and, and I just walked up to your table and I took the check and I went to pay it. You ate the meal. You owed the debt. I picked up the check and I paid the debt. See, 
Jesus paid the debt. Jesus paid the bill. He accepted the penalty that we deserved. And in so doing, He satisfied the law so that now we can have peace with God on earth, peace among those with whom He is well pleased. Because Jesus did that, God is well pleased. God is well pleased with Jesus and He's well pleased with His people as well. It's part of the amazement. It's part of the wonder of the Christmas story. And then it goes on in verse 16 that they went with haste. The shepherds leave. They've heard from the angels. And so they go with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And listen, this is their first instinct in verse 17. I love this. They immediately just... When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them. I love that phrase, made known, because that's the phrase that appears in verse 15, that the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see, and, and, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So God made known the gospel message to the shepherds, and the shepherds are now going forth, making it known, informing others of their experience with Jesus. In other words, at the center of the Christmas story is folks telling their story, folks telling about their encounter with the child, with Jesus. How their experience with the Savior has made a difference. Where they were when they met the Savior. How God took initiative toward them that they might meet the Savior. How they responded to God. How they moved towards Jesus Christ. These guys were not theologians. They were not eloquent. They weren't accomplished. Sometimes we can feel like, oh, wait a minute, I need a degree. I need to be reading more books in order to share my story, in order to talk to somebody about Jesus. No, no, this, all, this started with shepherds. They had no education whatsoever. But they had this. They had an experience with the Savior. And so they told their story. The Savior sparked a story. Savior sparked a story. So let me ask you a question about the next few weeks. What's your, what's your game plan for telling your story this Christmas? What's your game plan? Have you thought about it? Prayed about it? You know, one of the things about Christmas is that Christmas blends family with, with, with many other things. For, for, for some people, it, it blends family with joy. To be together with family is a joyful experience. For others, it blends family with stress. For moms, it always blends family with work. because They're busy. They're serving their families. But maybe, just maybe this Christmas, we need to think about following the shepherds and blending family with our story. Bring those two things together. I'm not talking about being a theologian, the resident expert of all the questions that your family has about God. No, just go to your story. How did you meet the Savior? What has the Savior done to you? And maybe it will trigger the same wonder effect as it did in verse 18. Look at verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Oh, that's a great illustration of, of wonder. But perhaps, perhaps, the most wondrous response of all is seen in the first four words of verse 20. I didn't read this earlier, but let's just look at it real quick. 
Verse 20, look at just the first four words. This is mind-blowing. And I'm using that, recognizing that that's a wondrous word. This is mind-blowing. It says, first four words, and the shepherds returned. They went home. They went back. They went back to the routine. They went back to the mundane. I mean, think about what they're returning from. These guys had this life-changing experience. They had met God. They had seen angels. They had beheld Christ. They had basically experienced the climax of their life. Everything after this was going to be downhill in terms of an experience. But they went back. They went back to ordinary life. They went home. They returned to their jobs. They returned to sheep that won't listen They returned to difficult neighbors and leaky roofs and vomiting kids. You know, one of the ways that wonder gets corrupted, it gets corrupted, is by creating the expectation that wonder should be a way of life. Wonder should be my experience each and every day. That life should be this constant state of revival that we live in. Or my marriage should always be extreme and exciting. Or every Sunday I should have some kind of breakthrough experience. Or every day should be Christmas. I've mentioned C.S. Lewis to you a few times, particularly the screw tape letters. There's one part in the screw tape letters where where (coughs) screw tape is talking to Wormwood. He's the head, head demon. He's talking to his assistant or his apprentice, I should say, Wormwood. And he says this. He says, quote, The horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart. The horror of the same old thing. That's what the shepherds went back to. Same old thing. The horror of the same old thing. Every alcoholic knows this. Because getting drunk never seals the escape that they're reaching for. Because they still wake up the next day, man or woman, they still wake up to the bills, they still wake up to the kids. They still wake up to an existence where a high will will be interrupted by reality. I mean, yeah, sure, Dalvin Cook can break records, but he still has to brush his teeth. He still has to take out the garbage. He still has to live a life where most of his life is lived off of the field. See, the shepherds returned because their experience of wonder in this life was never meant to deliver them from the ordinary. It was never meant to deliver them from the ordinary. It was meant to bring Jesus into the ordinary. It was meant to carry Jesus back and take him back home and bring him into the ordinary. In other words, bring Jesus into where they work. Bring Jesus into the neighborhood we reside in. Bring Jesus into the spouse that we serve, or the kids that we parent, or or the addict that we love, or the same-sex attraction that we will deny tomorrow because of a superior affection for the Savior today. To do a small work in an unknown place because you saw the Savior 
but you still had the courage to follow the shepherds home. You went home. Listen, whether, whether you go home or you are home already this Christmas, I want to encourage you, follow the shepherd's example. Be at home sharing good news of God among men, invading the mundane to recalibrate our wonder. Let's pray.